If you have your Bibles, or if you want to grab one that's in front of you, uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, it's the same, same scripture Susan preached on or talked about with the kids. Uh, Mark 1, right there at the beginning, just going to be looking at four or five verses, starting in verse 9. Mark 1, 9, and we're going to be going through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended to him. That's the word of God for the people of God. So if you, happen, if you have been following along um, online, or if you were here during Advent in person, um, you may have picked up on the fact that we have utilized the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark several times since December, uh, the first we caught the first one, I think, was the second or third of Advent, and it, it, uh, it, uh, it pertained to the first few verses where we learn about John the Baptist. We're first initially introduced to John the Baptist, and we see, we see some prophecy about Jesus. We see that Jesus is identified as the Messiah, as the Son of God. John the Baptist identifies him. And then Mark uses some scripture from, uh, from the book of Isaiah uh, to further endorse that, uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. And uh, that was what we talked about during Advent, using, utilizing Mark 1. And, and then several weeks ago, we uh, utilized a few scriptures down uh, when we talked about Jesus calling his first disciples, if y'all happen to recall that, and how Jesus' disciples, the first ones he called, just responded to him like that. It's, it's, almost, kind of, it's almost kind of crazy, um, unimaginable, the way that these guys responded to him when he simply said, you know, follow me. They dropped everything that they knew. They dropped their families. They dropped their lifestyles. They dropped their occupations. They picked up their cross, so to speak, and they, and they followed Christ, again, without hesitation. So we're going to back up from those verses a little bit, and we're going to be concentrated on, uh, on, on what we read just then to, um, a few minutes ago. But something that, that sticks out to me about the Gospel of Mark is uh, Mark doesn't waste any time. And actually, Susan mentioned that this morning when, uh, in the children's sermon. Um, sometimes I think she, she reads my notes. <clears throat> but something that you'll, that you'll notice about the Gospel of Mark is Mark just kind of jumps right into it. He doesn't, he doesn't waste any time talking about Jesus' ministry. You're not going to find any stories about the baby, baby Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he, just, he just forgets all, he just leaves all that stuff out. Um, you're not going to find any stories about a young Jesus, in, any of this. He just jumps right into it, full force. He talks about the baptism, he talks about the wilderness. The next verses talk about him calling his first disciples, and as Susan mentioned this morning, the next verses, um, he's straight into delivering his, his first sermon. So Mark just jumps right into it, which I think is just kind of something neat to, neat to note about the Gospel of Mark in contrast to uh, the, other, the other Gospels, uh, particularly Matthew and Luke. But today's scripture talks about two things. It talks about the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And something I want to point out about the baptism of Jesus, this isn't what we're going to focus on, but, but I do want you to note this because this is something really cool that I think that really st that stands out to me. And I think if you'll, uh, 
if you pay attention to it, it'll, it uh, maybe it'll, 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 uh, it'll give you a little spiritual boost this morning. <clears throat> Some, but uh, if you look at what happened at the baptism of Jesus, you get, you get this beautiful imagery. You get this beautiful picture because Mark notes a couple of things. First, he notes that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descended on them. Holy Spirit descended on that scene. And then a second thing happens. Literally, the voice of God comes from heaven. And he again identifies Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So that's some beautiful imagery for one thing. Um, and it's a, certainly a beautiful scene. I would have loved to have been there. But something else that you notice is the, is the Trinity. The Trinity is present at this scene. All three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all present together, unified, communing together, working together at this scene of the baptism of Jesus Christ. This is one of those places from the Bible. This is one of these places from Scripture from where we get our, what we call Trinitarian theology, our understanding of who God is, God in three persons. And it's just so really cool to me that in this little picture of Jesus' baptism, they're all there together. They're all there working together. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus being baptized, the Holy Spirit descending on that. Just a beautiful picture. And again, something I, just, I really felt like just pointing out to you guys that, stick, that stuck out to me. So anyway, you get the baptism of Jesus. And uh, what we're going to focus on today, though, are, is this little bitty tiny fraction of Scripture. This little bitty tiny fraction, this morsel of Scripture that Mark gives us about the temptation of Jesus. And that's our focus word for today. That's our theme for the day, by the way, temptation. Uh, generally, the first Sunday of Lent, that is going to be, a, in, in a lot of churches anyway, that's going to be the theme that you're going to be heard preach is the theme or the idea of temptation. Undoubtedly, something else that you're going to notice is this. Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot about the temptation of Jesus, does he? Again, it's just, a, it's just a little snippet. It's a, it's a brief little thing there. Two verses at most. The Spirit sent him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And the, the, the wild animals were with him and the angels attended to him. That's all that Mark writes about that story. And that probably stands out to you because the vast majority of people in this room probably know the story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert, right? Maybe we don't recall all the details, but nonetheless, I guarantee you everybody in here has heard it. Okay? If you do want to check it out, and I encourage you to check it out, and I will encourage you further as I get into my sermon to check it out more, it's in Matthew 4 and it's in Luke 4. And you can find out all the, all the grisly details, if you will. You find out about Satan and, and the specifics of how Jesus was tempted and how Jesus was resp responded. But I'm not going to focus on that today for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want you to look at it yourself. I want you to do some homework, and I want you to dive into the Scripture. Because it's, uh, it's the focus, once again, of our sermon. It's the focus of our theme today. But also, it will help you so much if you, if you look at it through a certain lens. And, and, I'm, and again, I'll get into it later. But, but yeah, I want you to go back and read it, and I want you to apply some things that we're going to talk about today. Again, Luke 4 and Matthew 4. But before we get, before I get into temptation, I want to back up a little bit and talk about Lent and what Lent is. I think I mentioned it a little bit 
briefly when we first started today. I know Susan again mentioned it in the children's sermon, but Lent, Lent is all about self-reflection. Lent is a season of self-reflection. It's a season of, of self-evaluation. And as we, as we move towards Easter, as we move towards the celebration of the, of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we engage in these 40 days prior to Easter in these practices or in these disciplines. If you were here on Ash Wednesday, you heard me, you heard me say two things to you when I made that cross on your forehead. I said, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's one theme for Lent as well, is our mortality. It's the recognition of our mortality, that we, are, we began as dust, and we were all returned to dust. Everybody in this room, I'm not trying to make everything morbid, but everybody in this room will die one day. It is inevitable. The second thing I said when I made the second part of that cross was repent and believe the gospel, which is what we look forward to. It's also a big theme for Lent is the idea of repentance and looking forward to the gospel that was brought to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I also read a portion of liturgy to you. We have a, uh, you won't find it in the UMC, in the UMC hymnal, but we have a, what's called the Book of Worship. And it's got a lot of our, our formal uh, worship services in it. And, uh, and I read to you a bit of literature. And for those who were not able to make it, I want to reread that to you just again so we get nice and grounded this morning, so we get nice and grounded and have a foundational understanding what Lent is, how it came about, and, and what we do or what we practice or what we involve ourselves in during the season. And I think this little bit of the liturgy kind of sums it up. But I told you, I said, and I'm just reading this verbatim. <clears throat> I said, brothers and sisters, the early Christians observed with great devotion the days of our Lord's resurrection. And it became the custom of the church that before the Easter celebration, there would be 40 days of spiritual preparation. That is what we call Lent, 40 days of spiritual preparation. And here's a little history behind it. During this season, in the past, converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. The Catholic Church still does this. If you're going to be baptized into the Catholic Church, generally they perform most of their baptisms at Easter. And Lent is a time of preparation for those who are who were preparing to be baptized into the church. So it's still a practice in the church. It was also a time when persons who had committed serious sins and had separated themselves from the community of faith were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness. There's another theme for Lent, penitence. And they were restored to participation in the life of the church. In this way, the whole congregation was reminded of the mercy and the forgiveness proclaimed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the need that we all have to renew our faith. And I invited you, and this is the words, that I, again, that I spoke to you. I invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to observe a holy Lent. How do we observe a holy Lent? By self-examination, by repentance, by prayer, by fasting, by self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. Now, I've been preaching to you all for a little, over, a little over a year and a half, I think, somewhere in that, somewhere in that neighborhood. And I think that you all will all agree that the ideas of self-evaluation, self-examination, confession, repentance, those types of things have all been very, very thick in my sermons. Yeah? I talk about those things a lot. And there's a reason that I talk about those things a lot. Okay, again, be reminded we're talking about Lent. Um, there's a reason I talk about those things a lot because I believe they are some of the best spiritual disciplines that we can practice that lead us towards 
real transformation. The Apostle Paul wrote that one of our purposes was to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I think these particular practices are, are, are absolutely amazing and uh, authentic ways, means, we call them the means of grace in the Methodist Church that God uses to effect that kind of transformation in us. Self-examination, self-evaluation, confession, repentance. I believe all day long in the practice and the, uh, the, the uh, discipline of confession. Okay, now we're not the Catholic Church. You don't have to come confess your sins to me. But I do believe in this. I don't think that a whole lot of healing happens when we merely confess our sins to God. And I've said this from the pulpit before. But don't y'all think that it's kind of interesting that it is much easier for us to confess our sins to Almighty God than it is to another human being? Amen. Amen. I think we should confess our sins to God, of course. But I'm going to tell you what happens when you're able to confess your sins to another human being. On the other side of that is healing, and on the other side of that is transformation. I can't explain it. I'm not God. I don't know how it works, but it works. When I'm willing to confess my shortcomings, the areas where I struggle, the sins that I commit to another human being, the on the other side of that is spiritual healing and spiritual transformation. I guarantee you, I promise you, it's happened in my own life numerous times. It continues to happen. I've still got people. They're none of y'all. <laughs> but I've still got people that I go to, that I talk to about my sins, about the things that I struggle with. And I practice the art of confession with them because I know I have to do that in order, number one, and number, number one, to stay, to stay, just to stay in good with God. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean my, my, my words are failing me right now. But to... Uh, not to stay on God's good side, that's not what I mean. <clears throat> but to be in that right relationship. I know that if I'm not actively evaluating myself and confessing my sins to another person, um, I'm either stagnating or I'm going backwards. In other words, and, and my relationship with God suffers. And, and yours will too. Sin just eats you alive. Sin just eats you alive. You know, what's, what's that thing we say, Sandy? The, we're only as sick as our secrets. We are only as sick as our secrets. And there's so much truth to that. But here's the thing. In order for us to even begin practicing in these disciplines, for us, in order for us even to think about uh, practicing this evaluation, this confession, this repentance, those types of things, we've got to come to a place. We have to come to a place where we are able to see, where we are able to admit our propensity towards sin and our vulnerability towards, here's that word, temptation. We can't evaluate ourselves. We're certainly not going to come to a point of confession. We're certainly not going to come to a, any kind of point of repentance until we admit to we're able to see our propensity towards sin and our vulnerability towards temptation. Because make no mistake about this, we are all tempted. We are all tempted. I would say dozens if not hundreds of times a day. We are all tempted in some way, shape, or form. Now, let me break that down because here's what I'm afraid happens a lot of times when we use that word temptation in church. Well, I was tempted. Don't tempt me. Or the word tempest. I'm afraid that when we, when we use that word, our minds immediately go to some of the more what we consider to be 
egregious sins. Particularly, I think our minds kind of, kind, of, kind of want to go towards sexual sins, for example. All of us are tempted in some way, shape, or form. Let me give you a few examples. Ask yourselves these questions. When am I tempted to gossip against my brother or sister? If you want to know what one of the biggest sins in the church is right now, it's gossip. Where am I tempted to take the inventory, the moral inventory of a brother or sister, and go share my opinion with somebody else and rip that person apart? When am I tempted to engage, to simply just be around people who are, who are involved in those conversations? Do I leave or do I stay? There's a temptation. It's tax season. Tax season is upon us. How many of us have ever, or how many of us are, tempted to fudge on our tax returns? What about our business practices? What about our occupational practices? Do we take advantage of other people in our business or occupational practices? More specifically, are we tempted to take advantage of people who are vulnerable? Are we tempted to take advantage of the less advantaged, of the poorest and neediest among us? Are we tempted to do that? To earn a buck? And if we are, do we do it? Along those same lines, am I tempted to bypass the needs of somebody less fortunate than me because I don't agree with their lifestyle? Am I, attempt, am I tempted to bypass the needs of somebody else because I don't agree with their lifestyle? Or maybe just because it's too inconvenient for us? I'm going to venture to say, starting right here, that's something we're all guilty of. Much less being tempted, we're guilty of it to some degree. When am I tempted to lash out in anger or somebody who offends me instead of practicing the disciplines of humility and self-control? So yeah, we're all tempted, if we're going to be honest. We're all tempted in some way, shape, or form. And uh, we probably give in to those temptations a lot more frequently than we'd like to admit. Here's the thing. As human beings created in the image of God, particularly as Christians uh, who have been redeemed, particularly as people who, who, who have been redeemed, who have that faith in Christ, we know right from wrong. Now, we don't just know right from wrong. We, we, we have the ability to make right decisions. We have the ability to make right judgments, right choices. <clears throat> but sin still plays into our lives. Okay? John Wesley believed in this. And this, this is a hard subject to talk about. John Wesley believed in, this, in something that they called, and we still call as Methodists, this idea of entire sanctification or... Um, there's another word for it, but for, for the sake of me not being able to remember it, I'm, I'm just going to stick with that one. Entire sanctification. Wesley believed that we could reach a point in life, although he said he never reached it, uh, that we could reach a point in life where we were, where we were living um, not only to the point where we had no desire to sin whatsoever, but, we, but where we were living in perfect love for God and neighbor. He believed that people could accomplish that. At the same time, Wesley and I and everybody, every other Christian that I know, admits and we know that we still live in a world of sin and that we still have sin. That we, I've never known anybody that's accomplished that. I would like to meet it, to meet it uh, myself, uh, but I don't know that I ever will. Here's where that other thing comes into play, though. 
we also struggle with sin nonetheless. Even if we believe that that is a possibility, most of us ain't going to reach it. Because we're human and we have that propensity towards sin. And that's why we're not able to make these right judgments still. We're still very selfish people. We are still very self-centered human beings who look out for number one. We still have sin in our hearts and we still have this pull. It's like this constant pull, right or wrong, God or the world, those types of things. So I think that's where grace comes in. That's where the grace of God comes in, comes into play. We know we're forgiven and we know that God understands us. We know that Jesus understands us because he was one of us. Not to use that as an excuse to sin, but that again is where the grace comes into play. So we have this ability to make the right choices and right decisions, but because of that sin, oftentimes we don't. And I apologize for going down that rabbit hole. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted as we read today in our scriptures. You can read again, you can read it, the full story in Matthew or, or Luke 4. But it wasn't just this case. It wasn't just the instance of, of, uh, of Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan. Jesus was tempted throughout his lifetime. And you can find numerous, numerous instances and incidents of this throughout the Gospels. But it's through his example, just like so much other stuff that we've talked about, talked about, talked about. It's through the example of Jesus that we can learn to have strength to have knowledge of how to face these temptations and to have wisdom in the face of temptations. And this is where I want to go back to your homework. And this is one of the reasons I'm not reading Matthew 4 and Luke 4 today. Because I would like for you to go back and read these. I highly encourage you to read the entire story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Ask yourself some questions. Because you see, Jesus... When he was tempted in the desert, he was being tempted by stuff that we're tempted with all, all the time today, too. It may have happened 2,000 years ago. He may have lived in a different geographical region, but the principles were still the same. Jesus was tempted to exercise his ego. He was tempted to follow his ego more than, he, more than over-following God. Satan tempts Jesus with worldly power and worldly affluence. Same things that we are tempted, materialism. Same things that we are tempted with today. So I encourage you, number one, to go back and read these scriptures in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And here's what I want you to do. Put yourself in that story. Put yourself in that story where you are playing the role of Jesus. And it doesn't matter. You can make Satan somebody else. You can make it a friend. You can make it an acquaintance. You can make it a family member. But make Satan the person who is tempting you. And I think that you'll see, place it in a modern context and think about those ideas, those themes where Christ is being tempted with his, to follow his ego and his own self-will over following the will of God, where he's being tempted uh, to... Uh, to uh, undermine God or set, side, or set God aside in the pursuit or in the promise of materials, materialism or uh, worldly power and affluence. And I think you'll see where I'm going with that.
couple more questions you might want to ask yourself while you're doing that, while you're placing that, while you're placing yourself in that story. Recognize and ask, how does Jesus counter each of these temptations? When he's tempted by Satan, what's his comeback? How does he counter those temptations? How does he fight those? Think, think about this. And remember, Jesus was, Jesus was fully human. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He was pretty weak at that point. We all know what happens when we don't eat, right? Besides being hungry, we kind of go a little bit crazy, right? Jesus was in that and, and weak, mentally weak and, and spiritually and physically weak. So that's where he was when he faced all this. Yet he was able to face it and overcome it. How does he counter those temptations? How are we, how are we tempted to place our, here's a good one, our physical comforts ahead of our spiritual commitments? How are we tempted to place our spiritual comforts ahead of our spiritual commitments? How are we tempted in the interest of acquiring or protecting our wealth and our influence to let someone or something other than God dictate our values and our actions? Let me repeat that one because that's a good one too. And again, this is a temptation that Christ faced in the desert. How are we tempted in the interest of acquiring or protecting our wealth and our influence to allow someone or something else to dictate our values and our actions. Satan tempts Jesus in all of these ways. All those questions I just asked you or repeated to you or asked you to ask yourself, Jesus was tempted in every single one of these ways in the stories in Matthew and the story in Luke. Ask yourself, how does Jesus respond? How does he counter them? How can we learn, and I'm not going to answer that for you. How can we learn from the example of Jesus to counter the temptations that we face in life? We are tempted by three things in life. Hold on. Before I go there, y'all don't have to turn to this, but I want to read you one thing out of, out of James. And if y'all remember right... Um, Y'all know that James is one of my favorite books. I think it's one of the hardest and most challenging books in the, in the New Testament um, as far as following Christ and reflecting Christ and, and, and uh, the things that James tends to point out. He's also the half-brother of Jesus, so I tend to believe that he knew what he was talking about. But in the first chapter of James, he writes this. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after that desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We're tempted by three things, and God is not one of them. I know some people might want to argue that, but that's right. I don't know how you argue it when it's right there in the scriptures. God doesn't, God is not, <laughs> is not the initiator of sin. And he is certainly not the tempter of sin. He may test us to some degree. He may allow testing to some degree. But God doesn't tempt us to sin. Make no mistake about that. There's three things that tempt us. Number one, like we just read in James, it's ourselves. Primarily in my life, that's what I find to be the truth most of the time. When I'm tempted, it's me. That's where the self-evaluation examination come from. Perhaps it's another person. Sometimes it is another person or it's another group of people. 
And of course, there are the occasions where there are spiritual influences. Those are the three things that are the primary sources, the only sources of temptation for us. Me, other people, spiritual forces. It ain't God. So I want to bring this home to you guys. And talk about one more thing. I want to bring it home to the local church. And I've struggled how to talk about this a little bit. I want to start off by saying this. I want to talk about what I think. And I wouldn't preach this. I told Oak Grove this morning. I, this is something I hesitate to talk about. And, and I would not... Normally preach it because I don't ever, ever want to preach anything that I think is just me or just my opinion. <clears throat> but I've heard enough other pastors talk about this and I've heard and, uh, and, and have the same feelings and the same observations that I'm comfortable enough talking about it now. I think if not the primary temptation of the church, not just Broxton, not just Oak Grove, God's church, I think the primary temptation... If it ain't the primary temptation, it's in the top three. During this moment, during this time in our lives, is apathy. Over the last year, we have experienced some stuff that nobody in the history of humanity has experienced. Certainly other cultures have faced persecution, those types of things, where, they have to, where, they, where their, their, their ability to meet together is, is disturbed. But in the United States, we've never faced anything like that. And this has been going on again for a year, on, off, on, off, on, off. Well, the temptation, oh, the problem with that, the biggest problem that I see, the biggest temptation that I see with that is apathy. It is the propensity to get apathetic, not just about our church, but about God. It is our propensity not really see our need for God anymore. Certainly not our need to be together as His church. And y'all know very well, there's, there's four or five people here together that have met regularly over the last year making decisions on how things are done and when things are done on and off. Everybody knows that, there, that I have been absolutely geared towards safety and precautions as much as humanly possible. So I don't, this ain't about making a guilt trip. But what I fear and what I see, see and what I hear other pastors fearing is that this is becoming an excuse for people not to return to God's house. Not only that, it's becoming bigger than that even, probably. is it becoming an excuse not to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ, which is our calling, which is who we are. That's what we do. We've talked about that innumerable times. I talked a second ago about God not tempting you. I don't think God's tempting anybody not to come to church or to stay away from church. I certainly think He might be allowing it. God will allow us to sin. He's not going to force us one way or the other. Maybe this is a door that He's opening up for us. Maybe it's this door that He's opening up to allow nominal Christians to bow out. I don't know. I don't know that. I'm not God. I don't know the mind of God. But I wonder about that. And I wonder about it frequently. I don't want you guys to get apathetic. This is where I'm bringing it to our local church. 
and I'm not accusing anybody of being apathetic. I don't want y'all to get apathetic about your local church or about the kingdom of God or about our mission. Because that's what we have and that's who we are and that's what we are. That's what we are called to be. A church on mission. It breaks my heart to have to preach to a doggone camera and empty pews. That is hard. I don't want to make this about me, but that's hard for me after weeks and weeks of doing that. I miss y'all. I want to see y'all. Do y'all remember? I know I'm going long. That's all right. Do y'all remember? Y'all remember what church was like about a year ago? Y'all remember that? When there were 60, 80 people sitting out in these pews and you could walk through those doors and you could literally feel the energy of God in this building? Y'all remember that? I want that again. I want to see that again. I want to see our ministries flourishing. And this ain't about guilt tripping. Again, I want, it's like me and, me and Aaron have had this conversation before. It's not that I want people to come to church. I want people to want to come to church. Amen. I don't just want you to fill a pew. I want you to want to fill a pew. I want you to want to engage in ministry. I want you to want to engage in Bible study. I want you to want to engage in discipleship. I want you to want spiritual transformation in your heart, mind, and soul. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid in this time that the apathy is just going to set in with a lot of folks. I'm afraid there's a lot of folks that we love that aren't going to come back. Plain and simple. I know that breaks y'all's heart, and it breaks my heart to say it, but it's the truth. I'm afraid. Don't allow this time to let you become apathetic, please. If you feel that pull in your heart, don't allow this time to make you apathetic, to allow you to become apathetic. If you care for your brothers and sisters, reach out to them. Don't allow them to be, to be, to be let go. Don't allow them to let themselves go. Let's resurrect this church. Easter's all about resurrection. Let's resurrect it. Let's not just resurrect it to the point that we were a year ago. Let's resurrect it to beyond, through God's help, to beyond anything that we have ever seen or experienced. And that's something y'all want? And that's something you want? Are we growing as disciples? Are we reaching out to those folks out there in Broxton, outside of the church? Let's do that. Let's do that. Y'all pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for... Your church, thank you, God, for one another. And we just thank you so much for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for the season of Lent that we are given where we can practice the disciplines of self-evaluation, self-reflection, where we can practice the disciplines of confession and repentance and where we can grow through your help into the image of Jesus Christ in our hearts and our minds. We pray, God, for your church this morning that is undoubtedly suffering, that is suffering. We pray, God, for those who are being pulled away, for those who might be becoming apathetic in their, in their hearts toward your church, toward your kingdom. We ask, God, that you would protect those people. We ask, God, that you would not allow them to stray. We ask, God, that you would reach into their hearts, that you would make them aware of your presence, and that you, that you would touch them, and that you would draw them back into your church and into your kingdom. Be with us as we go our separate ways this week, Heavenly Father. Help us to live the gospel for every person that we meet. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.